All right, well, there's nothing like Baptism Sunday. There's nothing really like the local church where we get to sing together and see changed lives. And one of the things that baptism always reminds me of as we were watching it today and thinking about it is, uh, is it's always about commitment, right? I mean, you think about what happens when somebody gets in the water and they, we saw this 29 times over the last two weeks. Somebody gets in the water and then they say, I will go. They say this to the Lord. I will go wherever you ask me to go and I will do whatever you ask me to do, which is a short way to say, you are the Lord. And it just reminds us that what Christianity is about is commitment. I mean, I don't know how you can read your Bible and read things like follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your life and you will find it. In comparison to how much you love me, hate your parents. Put your hand in the plow and don't look back. I don't know how you can read things like that and think that Christianity is about anything other than serious commitment. And I just thank God that in the, in the life of our church, we're about four years old now. In the life of our church, we have just had a high commitment culture. And I, I don't know fully how it happened. I don't know if, it could ever, if we could do it again if we tried. Uh, part of it was our launch team of 100 people, 30 who moved here. They just said, we're going to be all in. We're going to be all in with our time, our talent, our treasure. We're going to connect our time, our money, our resources to the people of God and the mission of God in a strategic, consistent, timely manner. And, and what's been incredible is what we've seen over the last, well, four years. And one of the things that, we've, that we have seen God use the most is our weekender in helping people get connected and committed. So let me just say this. We've got one chance left in 2020. We keep saying it. We're trying to get out of 2020 as quickly as possible. But we've got one weekender left, December 4th and 5th. So if you've said, hey, you know what? I want 2021 to be different. Part of the way that we, it's different is we connect meaningfully to other people who love God, love us, love the Bible, want the best for us. And so we think that's going to be an incredible time, December 4th and 5th. It's really almost at capacity already. We're going to open up a few more spots as we look to December. If there's any of you, you can go online or outside. Second thing I want to say, just real briefly, is to talk just for a moment about the election. It's like, well, you know, what am I going to say? It's like, I, I'm not even sure. Well, I know now because I've done this three times. But I'm not, I'm not even sure in the sense that what I normally do is on Mondays, I start to write the sermon for the next Sunday. And so I sat down Monday and I was like, I don't know what to say because the election didn't happen. Then Tuesday happened. I said, I don't know what's going to happen. And then I thought, well, maybe on Wednesday. And I didn't. And then Thursday, I thought, nope. And then Friday, nope. And then Saturday, not. and then, so I wrote it this morning, okay? And, and I changed it before I came out. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but but it, it, I say all that to say, right? And that's kind of been what this year's been like. It's like 2020 has been just a crazy year in which uh, it's been a lot of bad news, a lot of ups and downs, of course, COVID, everything else like that. And then as of yesterday, Biden says he won. Trump says it's not over. So what is the role of the church? And this is interesting. We always bifurcate between what is the role of Christians, which can be different than what is the role of an organized church? What is the role of an institutional church? And, and here's what we know. At one level, we can't be passive, right? The church can never say politics doesn't matter. It's like, we, we all agree on, on the other side of politics, it's like, politics matters, right? Who's in charge matters? Who your governor is matters, right? We, we all know that. At the, at the same time, we, we don't want to be passive, say it doesn't matter. Ideas do have consequences. Elections do have consequences. But we also don't want to be partisan, well, partisan is where we completely associate with one political party and they, they, they are God's party and they have it right. We can't do that either. So what are we doing? Just so you know, and, and this is what, what I encourage you to do, to continue to be prayerful and prophetic. That, that is the role of the church. Prayerful is we are going to pray for all political parties and all politicians. And, and prophetic is we are going to speak the word of God to all issues and all political parties and to call out every type of politician and every type of policy that would go against what the word of God says. So we say this again and again, but we don't know what the next two months are even going to look like now in light of just all the crazy that's happened. So, and we really believe this, what a divided nation needs, you hear me say this all the time, is a unified church. And here's what a unified church looks like. It's what's called an attractive alternative. Isn't that beautiful? Well, isn't that what you'd want your life to be like? If you're really a Christian, that's what you'd want your life to be, attractive. Like there's something about you that's different and it's an alternative. And it's like, it's different than other people because we behave and we believe differently because our hope's not ultimately here. So let's pray for that and then let's, 
This is what I'm excited about. I had, a, I had a mentor pastor this week say, the pastors need to lead their churches to, have, to tell them this. There's a more important conversation to be had than politics. We may be the only people on earth that say that. There's a more important conversation that we need to be having that's not political. It's about the gospel. And we're a gospel people, so let's pray. Lord, I just thank you right now. I thank you for the opportunity to see baptisms all day. I thank you for a culture of high commitment where I have been challenged, whether it's people coming back online or in this room to make weekend worship a a priority in their lives. Lord, I thank you for those who've come and who've served. Lord, I thank you for those who continue to fuel and fund the mission with their generosity. Lord, I I just thank you for the people who've, who've lifted our church up, our staff up, our pastors in prayer. Lord, we wanna continue to be prayerful and prophetic as we think about our nation, our country, and our government. Help us to do that as a church. In your name we pray, amen. All right, with our time left, we are going to be looking at Exodus chapter 15. Type two, turn to Exodus 15. I'm gonna catch everyone up because you know if you're new, it's a great time to be new, right? Every week, every service, we have new people in here and we're really excited. Whether you're watching online new or you're in this room new, let me catch everybody up where we've been. We've been in the book of Exodus for about 10 weeks. We've covered a lot. Let me sum it up. Uh, you have Moses and God's providence, and providence just means God's hand and plan in the life of Moses, and it takes God, this may encourage you, it takes God 80 years to get Moses to where he needs to be. Some of you are like, I wanna get to medical school. I wanna get to residency. Okay, it took Moses 80 years to get where he needed to be. And then, and then the second part of the book, or the second part that we've talked about so far is Moses and Pharaoh. And we, just, we love that. That's the scenes that you know. Moses goes, he confronts Pharaoh. There's the plagues. We all know that, the 10 plagues, which leads to the Passover in the Red Sea, which is what we spent the last two weeks looking at. And it's interesting because the Passover is where God says, I will accept a substitute instead of you. And the Red Sea is where God says, I will show you so you can see that I'm going to judge your enemies. Well, do you know that the cross and the resurrection are very much like the Passover and the Red Sea? There are two events that are connected. It's like, you know, a lot of times we'll say Jesus died for you. The only thing we don't say is, and he also rose from dead. And and that's really important because why is the resurrection important? Well, how do we know that God accepted what Jesus did for sinners? The answer is the resurrection. And so what I want us to see today, this is is where the whole shift in the story starts, is in Exodus 15, verse one. If you'll turn to, type to that. What we see is, what do Christians do now that we are completely free. We're free to live for Christ. We're free from the penalty of sin. We're free, if we want to be, from the power and the pollution of sin in our lives. So I want you to see, in chapter 15, verse 1, here's what they do. We'll just read the first part of verse 1. It says this, Then Moses and the people of Israel, and, and they estimate that it's about two to three million people. And we get that number because later in Deuteronomy, it says 600,000 men went out, they estimate with women and children, it's somewhere between two and three million. So that's a quarter of the population of North Carolina. It's a lot of people, okay? It says this, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Now, we're gonna talk a lot about this song, and if you're kind of a Bible trivia guy, you'll, you'll, you'll find this, or a Bible trivia girl, you'll find this interesting, that this is the first song in the Bible. So Exodus 15 is the first song in the Bible. Uh, later, we're gonna see, you know, we get a whole book of Psalms, but this is the first of those. But here's the principle, before we get into all that, this is such an important principle, and many of you, you know, this is one of our younger services, many of you are young in the service, and this is really important to understand, um, this first principle that arises in, in Exodus 15, and it's this, that the first thing that we need to do is worship in the wilderness, that's the, literally the first thing. So they're gonna worship in the wilderness. And what is the wilderness? Well, we know what the wilderness is for them. It's like, it's a really hard place to be and they're gonna be there for 40 years, right? And when they first worship in the wilderness, they're like, well, praise the Lord, I'm worshiping in the wilderness. God just saved me. What they don't know is how long they're gonna be in the wilderness. They're gonna be in the wilderness for 40 years. And so what a wilderness is, is it's any time that there's pain or the mundane in your life. It's a wilderness, right? And COVID has created for many people wildernesses, right? 
I'll tell you common wildernesses that we, we see in the life of our church in our city in America. Um, here's one wilderness. I hate my job. It's so mundane. You would not believe particularly how many men hate their jobs. Right? And by the way, I mean, a job is something you wouldn't do if somebody wasn't paying you, right? <laughs> That's the definition of job, right? Some of us get careers. Most of us get jobs. Most people cannot stand how mundane their job is. It's like, well, what do you do? It's like, well, I, who knows the answer to that? There might be 10 things you do, but the first thing you do is I recognize you and Lord, I worship you. I want to be faithful. I want to trust you. Some people, their marriages are wildernesses. I mean, I would say at the size of our church right now, we probably get an email every week from somebody whose marriage is in the wilderness. Can you please help us find counseling? I just found this about my wife. I just found out this about my husband. And I don't know where, I, a lot of times, this is what it feels like for people. I don't know where I am anymore. Because I've told you guys this before, but when something happens like that in your life, when you look back, the past doesn't even make sense anymore. Because usually there's lying involved. So you're like, I don't even know what's true anymore. So then you're in the wilderness. Well, what do you do? It's like, well, who knows what you do? There's so many things to do. That's part of the problem. It's like, well, here's what you do. You start worshiping. Well, how about illness and injury? And that's really painful. And that's definitely going to happen to you or somebody you love at some point in your life. And it will be a wilderness. It's actually worse when it happens to somebody else that you love. You've all had to do it. And so you're walking through that. There are so many different types of wilderness. And the first thing we do is you say, I'm gonna worship in the wilderness. And this is why this is so important. Because most people think, and you would think this, it makes sense. Most people would think that the deepest worship happens when they feel it the most. You know, like if the band's doing really, and there's a lot of people singing and it's very emotional and, you know, and we get the liver quiver shivers, you know what I'm talking about, that we all get, that we love, okay? When you get, and we think, and, and, and we praise God for that, that's we love to come together. We love to sing loudly. We love to worship the Lord. We love to experience that. But here's what, what you'll find is that the deepest worship often happens when you don't feel like it, which is like, you know, we don't do, particularly millennials especially, don't do anything they don't feel like doing. But it's the worship of the will. And I'll tell you, I've seen this. I, I, there was a lady back when we were at Goler about two years ago, after service, a lady comes up to me. She says, hey, I never really met her before. She says, hey, I'm so-and-so. She says, my friend is dying at Wake Baptist, Hospital. Wake Baptist Hospital. Would you please go and talk to her? And I said, well, yeah, I will. And I went up. This is after there was two services that night. We didn't do four, four services back then. I had some energy. And, and I went, went up to uh, Wake, Wake Baptist. And I sat with this lady. And, and you know, I met her two young boys. And I realized that she had cancer and was going to die in about two or three weeks. And she said, I just wanted to pray with somebody. She was a strong Christian. She said, will you pray with me? And I don't know if you've ever prayed with somebody who's going to die in a few weeks. I mean, it's different. The way they pray, she was grieving that she wasn't going to be a grandmother. And this stuff's real, you know? People deal with it. And they, she, was, she, was deal, she was wrestling. She wanted to see the Lord, but she didn't want to leave her family. So there was a, and you know what? There, one of the things, and we'll get into songs, one of the things she really she wanted was music. And she actually told me, hey, this song's really gotten me through this, and this song really expresses this. And we actually were able to, and, and it wasn't me, it was the worship team, but we were actually able to record a song that she wanted on, our, on an iPhone and give it to her for her to listen to in the hospital. And she passed away two weeks later. And, and I'm just telling you that if you want to be an attractive alternative to the world, you worship God when you don't feel like it. You worship God when terrible things happen, even then, Right? If you know the story of King David, we won't go there right now, but I think it's 1st or 2nd Corinthians 12, or Samuel 12, um, David finds out that his son dies. He has a baby that dies. And it says he got up, he washed his face, and he went and he worshiped the Lord. It's like, wow, what kind of person does that? How do you even think about that? I, I knew a guy that was telling the story. He said that there, um, he had gotten this terrible diagnosis for his son in, in the hospital. 
and he said, he said, I got the diagnosis and I walked down the hall. He said, and, I, and I, the, the elevator doors opened up. He said, and I crawled into the elevator and I crawled into the corner and I just prayed to the Lord and I said, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do. And it was the deepest experience of worship he ever had in his life. It wasn't when he felt everything. And so this is such a fundamental thing because it's like, well, if you can worship in the wilderness, you can worship anywhere. And so we're going we're gonna to get to see this. I want you to see what, what happens. We're going to see a ton of principles. Partly what I want to do today is walk you through um, Exodus 15. Partly what I want to do today is to show us the importance of song and worship in the life of the church. We had a lady after the 11 o'clock service, been in church her whole life, good godly lady. She said, thank you. I never understood why we sing as a church. I never really understood the why. And so I want to talk about that for a little bit. First, I want you to see verse 15, verse 1 again. We're going to look at this, this verse in great depth. Then Moses and the people of Israel. It's interesting. Not just Moses. It doesn't say Moses sang and the people of Israel looked bored. <laughs> Which is what most worship leaders would say, you know, is, is the experience of people. It doesn't say, it doesn't, you know, I've read the whole Bible. I've read all the verses on worship. Nowhere does it say look bored, say nothing, and hold your cup of coffee. But that would be a common experience, right? And so what's interesting is the whole idea is that we are to sing together. Now, this is interesting because the Atlantic, uh, during COVID, I think it was about April, the Atlantic came out with an article on, you know, not a Christian <laughs> magazine. Um, the Atlantic came out with an article on the importance of singing because that was one of the first things in COVID they said, let's, you know, not do for a season. And so they, they kind of said, okay, well, what are the effects of singing? And guess what they found out? That when you sing with other people, it's a natural antidepressant. It immediately helps your immune system. Somehow hormones are released that help you bond with the other people. It's like, I love it when science catches up with the Bible, okay? <laughs> that's right. Uh, because the Bible's been saying that for a long time. You know, and that's actually, and that's why it's very deep because, you know, the definition of deep is works at multiple levels of analysis. That's like, that's why something's deep. It works everywhere. And so what's so deep about singing is it's like spiritually it connects us to God. Relationally, it connects us to other people. Biologically, it's good for us, right? And so we love to sing. In our culture, we love singing, right? I mean, I was thinking the other day, it's like you go out, to, I mean, I remember being a kid, you go out to the baseball game, and it's like, what do you do at the beginning of a baseball game? Everybody stand and sing. It's like, well, this is strange, but okay. <laughs> it's like, what is that all about? It's like, well, it's, we're singing the song of our nation. And then what's, what's even more interesting, right? I remember like seventh inning, it's like, my dad takes me to a baseball game. Okay, in the seventh inning, we're also gonna sing. We're singing again? And you, get, you stand up and you sing and think about what you sing. Take me out to the ball game. What's that about? It's like, I'll tell you what it's about. It's the same thing we do together here. It's like, I love this so much, I want to sing about it with everybody else who loves it. That's worship. I mean, think about, so, so you know, think about the love for Broadway, the love for musicals, the love for Hamilton, right? I mean, when Hamilton came out on Disney+, Plus, one lady I knew, she said in the first two weeks, she watched it 11 times. <laughs> and you know what I said to that? I understand. I mean, it's that good. It's three hours long, but it is that good. You know, and then I was reading this article about it, and Lin-Manuel, who, who wrote it, okay, I read that he made $42 million between writing it, producing it, selling it to Disney, and you know what I thought? He deserves every penny. Because if you actually know what he did, he read a book that most of us could not make it through, a thousand-page book on Alexander Hamilton, and then he took that and decided, I'm going to make a story that's, for the most part, historically rooted. And it's going to be full of song. And I'm going to bring in multiple genres of hip-hop. And we love it. 
It's just like we love, a song is such a deep part of who we are. What do moms do with their kids immediately? Sing to them. What do kids do all day long? They just like skip around and sing. They sing songs that make no sense. My kids will be on the toilet just singing. I'm like, what could you be singing about in there? They just, but that's what they do, right? There's just this singing element to us. And so there's, there's song and culture, and then there's song in the scriptures. And I want you to understand song in the scriptures, because song shows up very early. In other words, a lot of people think, if you read Genesis 1 in the original Hebrew, it's poetry. So many theologians think maybe God sung the world into existence, which is, pretty, which is a pretty cool thought. And then music shows up very, no, this is the first song, Exodus 15. Music shows up very early. Music shows up in Genesis chapter 4. So, you know, Adam and Eve fall into sin, Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 4, musical instruments are invented. So we've been singing and dancing uh, for, and, and, and performing music for a very long time. And then what happens is, uh, is then you go all the way through the scriptures and they're singing massive songs and massive celebrations, so much so that you have the book of Psalms, which is something to think about. The largest book in the center of your Bible is a bunch of songs that express every human emotion possible, which is really incredible because like, you, you don't hear us talk about lament much, but, mo- but I think it's a third of the Psalms are lament which is why in COVID you saw a return by a lot of churches and a lot of Christians to the Psalms. It's like, we're trying to learn how to lament. We don't know how to lament. Life's been so good for so many of us for so long. We don't even have the category of grief and lament built in. And so what we have here is, is, is you see the singing. Now, you can, you can think about it a couple different ways. When we get to the New Testament, we're introduced to Mary, who she has Jesus. What, what happens in Luke chapter two as soon as she finds out she's pregnant? She sings a song. It's like, well, sometimes that's all you can do. You're so happy. It's like, all you could do is sing. Or, or how about Paul? It's like, well, all right, Paul and Silas, you're in jail, which, I mean, these jails were terrible. These jails, you only got fed if your friends were willing to identify with you and bring you food. I mean, these jails were terrible. And they were chained to each other, and many also think, usually you're chained to a guard. And so, <laughs> I think it's Acts 16. What do Paul and Silas do when they're in jail? They start singing hymns, it says. So much so that the guard, because we'll get to this, our singing is missional. Our singing is part of how we witness to the world. The guard says, what the heck's going on here? They end up leading the guard to Christ. How about Jesus Christ himself? Do you know that it says that in Mark 14, when Jesus left the Lord's Supper, so Judas leaves to betray him, it's him and his 11 friends. He says, let's sing a hymn. Read it, it's in Mark 14. It's an interesting thought. Jesus and his 11 friends singing an acapella hymn together because he basically needed to sing before he headed to the garden. God himself, I want you to see this, in Zephaniah chapter three, Verse 17, it says this, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. We sing because we're made in God's image and God sings. But here's the next thing I want you to see. I want, I want you to understand singing in the life of the church. So it's interesting that, again, a lot of people, it's like, how, do, how does the average Christian think about singing? Is it what we do to warm up for the sermon? That's how a lot of people view it. I need to sing, can we sing two or three or four songs so I can kind of warm up for the sermon itself? Some people think of it. Some people think it's what we do while some of you show up late, okay? <laughs> that, that's very, very common, right? Okay, I'm just gonna, you know, they sing for the first 15 minutes, so I'm gonna kind of show up. And it's interesting because Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Dallas, Texas of a large church, he said that as their church was growing, um, he was an incredible teacher, preacher, he still is. And he said that people, it would frustrate him and frustrate his whole, whole staff because, and their elders and everybody, because what happened is everybody would come just in time for his sermon and uh, they would miss all the singing. And so he said one Sunday, he switched it. 
he started, he started the sermon almost immediately. And they did a quick thing and then they got the sermons and, and they started to do that and they moved three or four songs to the very end. He said, what started to happen is, as he would say, all right, he'd finish his sermon. He'd say, let's pray. He, he said, as he would pray, he would see people start to pack up and leave. And he just said, I guess what's happened is the, the American church, we don't know what we have all priorities for, but maybe we have a priority for the teaching of the word. We don't often have a priority for the singing, for the worship by song of the church, which is partly how we respond to what God said. Do you know that there are 50, 50, five, zero, 50 commands in the, new te- or sorry, in the whole Bible for you to sing? Which is interesting. It's like, it's commanded. Like there's, you know, normally we think of commands as like, don't do this, right? Don't look at that and don't covet and don't lie and don't cheat and don't steal. And, you know, this is actually a command for your joy that you would come together, that you would sing. And so what, I want to talk for just a little bit about what we're doing in worship and in singing. Because when we talk about worship, sometimes we talk about worship, uh, like sometimes people think of singing as, uh, as worship and everything else not as worship, right? They'll be like, hey, I went to church and we worshiped and then heard a sermon and then saw a baptism and then we worshiped some more and then there were some announcements. It's like actually all of that was supposed to be worship. Because worship is when your faith expresses itself in obedience or adoration. That's the definition of worship. So, and, it, and that's helpful to know. It's like, so your faith, any, so you can worship your whole life. That's the whole point. It's like all of life can be worship because anytime I'm expressing my faith in obeying God or in adoration, that would be singing or praising God, that's worship. And so what I want us to see is, if you go back with me to um, Exodus chapter 15, verse one, I wanna show you one more thing. It says this, this is halfway through, I will sing to the Lord. So this is Moses saying this with all the people. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So the first thing we're seeing is that what we ultimately sing is the word of God and the events of God. That's what we sing. So this is, here's how we say it here. And this is really how we think about things. And I want you to understand how we as a church are intentional and how we think about things. Uh, We would say it's always about substance over style in worship. It's always about the content of what we're singing over the form of how we're singing it. And this is a super important conversation to have. I mean, not, not, I I thank God there's no division over this in our church, but how many churches split or splant or whatever you want to call it, okay, over, over worship wars, right? And it's interesting because what happens with this is if you'll, if you'll be a historic, we always talk about here, Bible saturated, historically rooted, globally informed, solves like most of your problems. Because if you realize historically, so this is interesting because people will say, you know, oh man, the music's too loud. Well, guess who says the music's too loud? Old people, every, every time, right? Every generation. I mean, that's just, that, that is actually the answer. The answer is young people in 40 years will. I mean, that, that's kind of the answer. But what's interesting about that is, do you know the organ is like literally the loudest instrument on earth? I mean, that thing is, I mean, that thing is so loud, right? The same people who say, I don't want it loud, want the organ. The organ is the scariest, loudest instrument I've ever heard. And, and what's interesting, so just think about that. And then, and then think about this, the organ was taken out of the bar. Most of you didn't know that. And when it was taken out of the ball, that's so ungodly. Do you know that when John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, he wrote it to a drinking song so people could easily remember it? It's like, it would be helpful to know these things, right? Do you know that when they put pews in the church, people thought that was ungodly because you're supposed to stand the whole time in worship because that's how you honor the word of God. Some of you are like, thank God they have pews, <laughs> right? Um, when they, took, um, when they, when they uh, decided to give us hymn books, people thought you don't do that. If it's really worship, you memorize the songs and you sing them. When, we got, when a lot of churches went from the hymn book to the screen, people thought, that's ungodly. Because if I can't see the entire song and all of it stands us all at once, it's not gonna affect me the same way. 
And of course, now there's, you can't put anything behind the songs that moves. I mean, it's just, we're, we're all goofy, okay, when it comes to worship stuff. And we, that's it's part of just admitting it, right? I mean, anytime somebody says, I didn't like the worship, I'm like, you know, I don't always say this out loud. My thought is, good, we weren't worshiping you. Because ultimately, it's like, it's not ultimately about that. We want to make sure the content is correct. The other thing, so I said, historically rooted, globally informed. So here's another helpful thing. If you go around the world, you, people get this. So I was at a church for a while, great church, but a church that had a very nuanced very sophisticated form of worship. I'm talking flute, I'm talking saxophone, I'm talking, I mean, just all of it, how you had to dress when you were on stage, all of these different things. Great church otherwise. I mean, just, but, but, but tunnel vision on, on, exa- on, on a certain type of, you know, they, if, if 1992 came back, they were ready. I mean, they were, I mean, they were ready for it. And, and, and uh, seriously. And, um, and, but what was interesting is it was also the most missional church I'd ever been a part of. And so, uh, up until that point. And so basically, what happened is whenever these people would go on mission to India or Africa or, or China or, or wherever, they would love the worship there, which would be completely different in style. Because they could get it. When they made the massive transition there, they would get it. Oh, that makes sense that they would have different drums here and that they would make those sounds and they would hit the beat like that and they would sing the songs twice as long and they would repeat the words so much. And, and so sometimes it's just helpful to go, okay, if I'm a historically rooted, globally informed person, and so, so just so you guys know, that, that's the heart. We are wanting to sing. Everything we do is, do we sing the word? Yes. Do we preach the word? Yes. Do we see the word? Yes. Do we pray the word? Yes. Everything we do is informed by the word. It's always substance over style. Now, here's the next thing I want you to see. If you look at me at verse two, it says this. The Lord is my strength and my, or I'm sorry, um, go back to verse 15, chapter 15, verse one. I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So here's what I want you to see, that the object of our worship, this is very simple, but sometimes, right, it's, sometimes it's going back to the very basics and going, this is what this is all about. The heart of worship is praising and honoring God above all else, right? It, they, they don't sing to themselves about themselves. But it's interesting, I mean, I mean, most worship today, right, not worship, most music today is just all about the self, right? <laughs> all about the self-desires, all about what, what we want, all about what we've done. And so... What's interesting is, is they, God is the object of their worship, even though it was Moses that they saw save them. So what they saw, if you go back, you don't need to go there now. If you go back to chapter 14, Moses puts the staff out. He's kind of the hero. The waters come crashing back down. And, and again, they may have thanked Moses and they should thank Moses, but they ultimately give honor to God. And this is a powerful principle. It's like, you know, if you ever met J.K. Rollins, who, you know, wrote Harry Potter, it would be really weird if you met her and said, I love Harry Potter. Can I see the laptop you wrote it on? She'd be like, well, I'm the author. I mean, I'm the author, but we want to think. If, if I had a you know, surgery done and afterwards, I said to the doctor, hey, did you use scalpels? Yeah. Can I thank them? You know, it'd be, it would be, I mean, now again, we should thank each other. We should give honor. We should thank the instrument that God uses, but we should give God the ultimate glory. And actually one of the, if you want to begin to worship everywhere, you need to begin to see God everywhere. You need to be see, so Martin Luther, famous monk, become pastor, theologian, all that. He used to say, God wears different masks. So, you know, he used to say, you know, God, so we'd say it this way, like, you know, you go to the grocery store and that's how God provides for you. And if you were like, man, it's so incredible that I can, I mean, the grocery store, could you imagine the apostle Paul walking into the grocery store? He would be completely overwhelmed. Or someone 300 years ago walking in the grocery store. It's like, Lord, thank you for providing for me. And it's so, it's so meaningful. Fun is a shallow word, but it's so incredible if you begin to say, God, I see everything in my life that's from you. Every good gift's from above. Tell you a story. When I first moved here, from Durham to Winston-Salem. Now, I gotta be honest, Durham's a real foodie city, okay? So I came here, I know this is gonna sound kind of snooty when I say this, but when I came here, I could find no good Chinese food. 
Now, there's really great Chinese food. I had it really close to me in, in Durham. And, and so for the first like three years here, I was trying, the, oh, they would say, try this place. And I tried, and it was okay. Try this place, and I tried, and it was okay. And, and then one day, I saw a new Szechuan on Peters Creek. And this little Biscuitville place had become, you know, this, this Chinese place. And I remember walking in there, and I thought, I wonder what this is going to be like. And I walk in there. And as soon as I get inside, everybody's Asian, and nobody speaks English. And I was like, yes, this is it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. This is it. I know this. And then I looked around and the only people eating there were Chinese people. I was like, I'm home. So I, so I, I immediately ordered the food and they gave it to me and it, and it looked just like the food from Durham when it was, you know, from the China place. And I can distinctly remember getting in my car, going home and being like, Lord, you did this. <laughs> you knew what I needed. I mean, I've thought about not moving because of the proximity of my house. I mean, if I were to move to, to, that, to that Chinese restaurant, I just love it. But it's just, it's just, it's just, I'm so grateful. And, it, and it's so fun. It's so deep to go, I'm not just grateful that that can, I'm actually, you know, I'm kind of joking here, but I'm being serious. I'm actually grateful to something more than that. I'm grateful to a God who would even create that type of food. So, so first, it's God-centered. Second, it's gospel-centered. Look at, look at verse two. The Lord is in my, do you see the personal nature of worship? It has to go to the personal nature. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. Now, do you see what he says there? He says, strength, song, and salvation. Some of you say, Kyle, where did you get the idea, idea of alliteration from? It's biblical. It's right there. Do you see Moses does it? Strength, song, and uh, that was a joke. Didn't go very well. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm in the line of Moses is what I'm trying to show you. Um, so basically, here's the big idea, guys, that, that they are singing about their salvation, which is incredible. I mean, this is what Christians do. Christians don't sing about how great we are. Now, this is interesting. I had a friend who, during 9-11, he was a campus minister. And he said that right after 9-11, they got everybody together. He said, and they said, the staff said, we're gonna sing a new song. And the song was called, We Are Who We've Been Waiting For. And it was just, a, it was like the classic American modern spirit. We're going to solve our own problems. There was no looking up to God. There was only looking around to each other. That's not what Christians do. Christians say, I will sing of salvation. Now, this is important because here's, here's why their salvation was, or here's why their worship was so deep. They looked at the Red Sea and they saw what should have happened to them. They looked and they saw the judgment of God had fallen on the Egyptians and it should have fallen on them. Now, the height of your worship will flow from the depth of your understanding of, of uh, theology, of salvation, and of what God's done for you. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. There was a, a pastor and he was walking a young new man who'd just become a Christian through uh, their membership class. This is a different church. And he said that the, uh, the, the young man said, hey, I'm trusting the Lord. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I want to follow him. I believe the Bible is the word of God. Um, I, I want to join the church. I just don't believe in hell. And he said, don't join our church. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to take about two months and I just want you to read about hell. I want you to read about judgment. I want you to read about the wrath of God. I want you to read about eternal punishment. I just want you to, and I want you to look at what Jesus says because no one talked about hell more than Jesus. And I want you to look at church history and I want you, and he said about two or three months later, that young man came back and said, I've read about it, I've studied it, and I do believe in eternal punishment now. And I just want to say thank you so much because my appreciation for the cross and my appreciation for Jesus Christ is so much deeper because I really realized what he saved me from. And so that's what Christians sing about. We, that this is why it's like, how could you not raise your hands? How could you not yell out loud? How could you not be thankful for what God saved you from? Now it says three, three things. It says he's our salvation, our strength, and our song. So salvation is, is you know, that's Christianity 101. God saved me, right? That's, that's what we hope our kids get at, you know, eight years old, 
five years old, whatever it is, 10 years old, that from a young age, they understand God saved me. But the second thing in the next phase is God is my strength, right? Some Christians never really understand this. They have to usually have to go through some type of suffering or they have to deal with some type of sin where they have to realize, really realize, I've come to an end of myself. I, mean, I had a guy this weekend say, it wasn't until my parents got divorced that I really realized I needed God. I, he said, I was, I was a Christian, but when, I real, when my parents got divorced, I realized, like, this is real. And I can't, he said, and he said to me, he goes, I think every man and every woman needs a breaking point in their life where they realize they can't do this on their own. And that's where God says, God isn't just my salvation, God is my strength. And then what, what, what the, the, I think what you get to eventually is God is my song. In other words, it's not, it's not just what I need to get through life and he saved me from hell, but I actually enjoy him. And sin would not be an escape to pleasure. It would actually be an escape from pleasure. And I wouldn't want to do anything that would break the fellowship that I have with God. So he sings these things. It's, it's gospel-centered. It's God-centered. And I want to see, show you what it says in Exodus 15, verse 2. It says this, my father's God, he continues to sing and very, very personal, my father's God, and I will exalt him. So it's, it's gospel-centered, it's God-centered, it's generational in thinking. So he says, he says I'm going to worship the same person that my mom worshipped and my mother's mom worshipped and my dad worshipped and my father worshipped. It's multi, this is, by the way, I want you to, you know, this is why we sing old songs and this is why we sing new songs, right? This is why we sing hymns that are very, it's really amazing to sing songs. Like when you sing the doxology, I won't sing it for you right now, but which is, which is the, you know, the, basically where you, talk, where you sing about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That I think was, was written in 1674. So when you realize that, that was written 100 years before America was founded, and that, that, that's so powerful to think Christians have been singing this song or certain songs for hundreds and hundreds of years. But also every new generation wants to, in their own style, based on their own experiences, at, based on the word of God, write their own songs. And so you, you see, that he says, my father's God, you see the generational nature of it. This is also part of, what, what, part of how we make theology memorable and portable is we encapsulate it in song, Right? One of the things that we, we say on our staff team is songs are sermons people remember, which is kind of offensive to me, just a little bit, okay? <laughs> and, and I understand that. I understand that most of, I mean, it's a humbling thing to realize that most of what I tell you, you will not remember, okay? <laughs> that you will forget. But there's something about a song that can say, hey, let's put music to this. Let's put emotion to this. Let's think very creatively. Let's package it in three to five minutes. Let's put it on your Spotify playlist. Let, let you take it with you everywhere there you go. And so that's the generational part. Here's what, look at, look at verse three here. This is the first, I love things in the Bible that are surprising to us. In verse three is the first thing that they sing about God after they're about their salvation. This is the first attribute or character of God ever sung about in the Bible. Here it is. The Lord is a man of war. It's like, wow, wasn't expecting that. I thought, I was, look, I was hoping for God is love. Right? I mean, that's kind of what people would think. That the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. So he's like, the number one thing that he worships God for, and one of the main things we should worship God for, is he fights our battles for us. He fights our enemies for us. We had an enemy, Satan, sin, death, hell, the wrath of God, and he took care of those enemies. And a lot of people sometimes go, well, it was the God, in the, kind of a classic misunderstanding of scripture. Is, is, the, is the God in the Old Testament like this angry warrior? It was like his teenage years, his middle school years, and then he matured, 
and you know, in the New Testament, he's like, a, he's like a more mature version of himself and he's not angry anymore and he's not wrathful and he's not judgmental. And it's like, you can't read the accounts in the gospels of Jesus Christ and how he dealt with religious people and the demonic and think that there, there's not still a warrior Christ. You can't read the end of the book of Revelation where it says Jesus Christ is coming back with a sword on a horse and he's wearing white. If you wear white to a fight, you're winning, okay? <laughs> you don't normally wear white to a fight, you're winning, okay? And so we have this kind of idea, and this is really powerful because you, what will create deep worship in you is to realize God has fought for you and will fight for you. Like I have seen in 15 years of ministry that women will put up with almost anything in their husbands if they actually believe that they love them and will fight for them and will fight for their children. They'll put up with the laziness and the goofiness and the whatever else it is. If they believe at the end of the day, I'm, fight, I'm tender with my family, I'm tough for my family. I had a guy after, this is a neat thing about doing this a couple times, I get some response and can talk about a couple things. I had a guy after the second service come up to me. He said, thanks for talking about the idea of the warrior. He says, I, I'm just convicted that that's what I need to be for my family. That's what my family needs. He's got young kids. He's like, I need, I, that's what I need to be. I need to be tender with my family. I need to be tough for my family. And then I have a warrior God. Now, now I want to talk particularly to the men for a second because I realize one of the reasons that men, men are, you know, don't sing very often, okay? <laughs> I would, if, we, if we could probably, you know, poll, I would imagine, you know, in this room, when we stand and sing, it's going to be much more natural for the women to sing, usually, than for the men to sing. Well, why is that? Well, there's multiple reasons for that. One of the reasons for that is a misunderstanding of who God is. It's like men do not want to sing romantic love songs to Jesus. And they shouldn't want to. That's weird. I'm serious. I mean, that would not, that would not, there's no precedent in church history for singing romantic love songs to Jesus. None of the old hymns would be like that at all. There is precedent for worshiping Jesus Christ, worshiping God the Father as our dad, as our warrior king. And most men, Christianity begins to make sense for them when they realize God is my father and he's a good warrior king and he fights my battles for me. And what I need to do as I head out in life is ask him to help me fight these battles that I have ahead of me. And believe you will. I was talking to a guy who said, my son's playing uh, 10-year-old baseball. He said, he's not, a, not the greatest pitcher right now. And he gets really scared up there. You know, if you've played sports at that young age, you know what it's like. And he said, you know what I've been telling him? I said, when you get on the mound and you get scared, you ask God to be your warrior king. And you say, God, you're, you're a fighter. Would you strengthen me? It's like, wow. What does that do to a 10-year-old? What, what kind of vision of God and vision of life does that give them? It also reminds us that God's not tolerant. That idea of God being tolerant is wrong. People think God's tolerant. No, no, God's patient. That's a different thing. God's patient. God will put up with you for a long time. <laughs> God is very slow to anger, but don't take patience for tolerance. God does not approve of all lifestyles, of all sinful decisions, or any sinful decisions. God, God does not approve of all perspectives. And so we have this beautiful picture of God as a warrior king, which leads to what's next. Look at verse 6. It says this, your right hand, that's not to be offensive to you left-handed people out there, okay? <laughs> there's, but there's only, I mean, historically, 10% of the population is left-handed. So right hand just meant your strong hand, your dominant hand. Um, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemies. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stumble, stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, and this is interesting, the Bible will often use anthropological language anthropomorphic, maybe is the word, language to describe God. It, it's, it's, God doesn't have nostrils. It's, it's human language to help us understand who God is. It's how God condescends by describing himself to us. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the flood stood up in a, in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, 
And, and by the way, part of the reason you want God to be a warrior king is if you really believe you have a real enemy. You know, like if you really believe that Satan is real, that means that there is a evil, intelligent person who hates the church. Okay? And that is very, very true. And you'll even meet humans like that. <laughs> evil, intelligent, don't like you. That's a scary place to be in. Very scary place to be in. And so that's where you say, God, will you fight for me? Will you strengthen my hands? Right? This is, why the, this is the language in the Bible of spiritual warfare. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? That, that's the heart of worship, God, there's no one like you. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your, and this is interesting, the first mention of this word in the whole Bible, which will become a major theme, steadfast love. This is the first word, mention of the word has said, which is a love of the will. It's a love of decision. It's a love that says, I'm not going anywhere. It's amazing that God will both give us action and affection in the same idea. God's a man of action, God of war, a man of affection. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. I won't spend a lot of time on this except to say this. What, what Christians have always done, what, and, and we see this in the example of the first song in the Bible, is that we sing the story of what God's done for us. We, and, and now they, had, they didn't have a lot of stories to sing. They, they had their one experience with the plagues and God's salvation. We have all of scripture to sing the story. You know, and this, the story has many parts. There's the story of creation. So you'll hear us sing about that. God creating the world and how glorious he is and how glorious all the creation is and, and how great his character is. Other times we'll sing about our sin. That's gonna be one of the strangest things, <laughs> right? If people come for the first time, if you're, if you're here for the first time, uh, what we do about when we say, so what, what the world does with sin is either we don't talk about it or we boast in it. That's what the world does. I don't talk about it, I hide it until it blows up my life and destroys my life. Uh, or I boast in it. I sing about it really, really loudly and I act like there's nothing wrong with it. What the church does is say, I, no, we're gonna actually really confess our sins. Part of what we do in singing is public confession of our sin. When you sing Come Thou Fountain and you say, my heart is so prone to wonder and it's so prone to leave the God that I love. That's a confession. And every time I sing it, I'm like, that's true. And I needed to sing that. And, and then there's the cross. And when, so many times you'll, you'll hear us, we'll, we'll try to sing the, the the epicenter of what we sing about is the cross of Christ. And the truth is, in heaven, is also the epicenter of what we sing about, the lamb who was crucified. That's what they sing in Revelation 5. In heaven forever, we will sing about how Jesus Christ saved us on the cross. Which leads to the, to the final thing we sing about. Look at verse 14. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. So it's basically saying other people have seen how great God is. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. And then look at verses 17 and 18. So that was kind of more of the story and its implication. Verse 17 and 18. You will bring them in and plant them in your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The final thing Christians sing about is our future hope. What's interesting is if, if you look at places where the church is a minority uh, or the church is heavily persecuted, guess what the church sings a lot about? Heaven. 
in the second coming of Jesus, which is why Americans sing almost never about heaven or the second coming of Jesus, because that's not often where our hope is. And what's interesting is we, one of our desires, along with having substance, the word of God, is to have a span of emotion when we sing. There was a very famous article written multiple years ago called, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? <laughs> it's an interesting question. And the whole idea is, hey, life is really, really hard, and if you walked into the average church, everybody seems like they're just singing these happy songs about how, life, how great life is. And what we try to always say is, I, I really, I try to think this in my mind, that every week in our church, this, somebody got engaged and somebody got some really bad news about their parents. Something like that. I mean, then that would be the truth. Somebody got into the medical school they wanted to or the residency that they wanted to or he asked her out or what, who knows. And it's really, really exciting. And then somebody else, you know, is worried about a lump they discovered on their neck or found out they're being, you know, demoted when they thought they might get a raise or found out that they still can't get pregnant or stay pregnant. And part of what the church does is it creates a language in song. This is why the Psalms have so many different rhythms to them and so many different elements of emotion to them. But we want to sing songs that say we can, all of us can grieve together. All of us grieve about what it's like to live in a sinful world and we look for heaven and the hope to come. And so thus ends mostly the song, but there's this one interesting thing I want you to see in verse 19. Here's what it says. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And here's, this is interesting, verse 20. Then Miriam, and Miriam is the sister of Aaron and Moses. Moses is actually the youngest of three. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine, and all the charismatics said amen, right? Okay, the tambourine, here we go. In her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. Now, this is interesting because Moses leads all the people. Miriam leads some of the people. Right? Moses leads all the people in worship. She leads some of the people women, or in, in worship, particularly the women. This is a great application. It's like, who do you need to lead in worship? Well, the answer is first yourself. <laughs> you know, and then maybe the Lord will open, open up different opportunities. You know, if you're a husband, if you're a father, lead your family, lead your wife. If, if you've got roommates, lead them. Say, let's get together, guys. Let's sing together. Let's pray together. Let's worship the Lord together. There's something powerful that happens when we come together to worship. I remember my senior year of college, a guy said that. We were living in a dorm to try to reach the dorm for Christ. And he said, what if we got up at every you know, Friday morning at 7 a.m. and prayed together? And 7 a.m. is really early in college. I didn't even know there was a 7 a.m. Uh, I mean, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But, you know. And so, so we'd get up and we'd pray and we'd seek the Lord together. And what we see here with Miriam is it says that she was singing and dancing. And every once in a while, people will ask me, can Christians dance? And the answer is some can and some can't, okay? <laughs> that's, that's the biblical answer to that question. Uh, and, you know, but but there's, there's, this, there's, this, there's all of these different, what we see is, is she's both loud in how she sings, right? I remember, you know, I, I'm a loud singer. I have the spiritual gift of being able to, some of you have seen this before if I'm in here, but I have the ability to sing the wrong words to songs that I have sang a hundred times while looking at the words on the screen. I don't know how it's possible. <laughs> but, but I can remember when I was first dating my now wife, Margie, uh, we were, we were, uh, I brought her uh, up to church one time and I was singing and I just, I didn't even really fully, re I, part of it's I got a really loud voice, you know, to begin with. <clears throat> but I, I was singing and afterwards she said to me, Kyle, you sing so loud in worship. It's awesome to see you're unashamed. And I was like, <laughs> that's right, unashamed. And then what happens, this is what happens in marriage though. Now, because the difference between cute and annoying is time, okay? And so... <laughs> So now in the middle of worship, she'll hit me sometimes and she's like, you are so loud and off pitch and singing the wrong words. I'm like, ah, I'm sorry. So 
so there's, it says make a joyful noise to the Lord, right? Um, um, so, but then, there, then there's the whole, there's the whole physical element of worship, which is really powerful. You know, and it's like, it, you know, if you've ever seen Tim Hawkins, he's a Christian comedian. He picks on, you know, Christians and, and, and how we worship and the different decisions that we make. And he said, you know, if you grew up, if you grew up at kind of a Presbyterian church or more of an independent uh, fundamentalist church, he said, this is all you can do, the chicken flap. If, if it's, if worship's getting really good, you kind of do, and you think about pulling a hand out of the pocket, but you're not sure if you're going, you know, if you're going to. He says, and then, and then, you know, as you kind of get into, if you're kind of at a Baptist church and you know, they'll let you do a couple things and you feel comfortable, you may do hold the television where you just kind of, <laughs> and, and if it's non-denominational, it's hold the big screen TV. It's, <laughs> and, he's, and then, you know, said, and then, you know, some people say, hold my baby. And then if, if it gets, if the song crescendos, it's really powerful. It's Mufasa. Okay. And, and you'll see this. And then, you know, he says, if you get into some of these churches, there's some more freedom. He says, you may do the, give God a high five, you know, one hand up. He says, but the, the key is, you know, you're in a fully expressive church when you can do goalpost into heartburn, <laughs> back into goalpost. And, and, I, and I tell you this partly because part of what it means, and actually it's funny, part of what it means to know something is to joke about it. You actually don't, if you can't joke about something, you don't understand it. And so, and part of that, we have to laugh at ourselves and how goofy we are, but, but the, the truth is that there is something about being physically expressive, right? Some of you, you, you need to be more physically expressive, okay? You need to, based on your own personality, based on an understanding that we're <laughs> in public, okay? <laughs> Some of those things. Um, but you need to be more expressive because every once in a while people go, I'm not expressive. And then I watch them watch a Carolina Panthers game. You are very expressive when a 21-year-old catches a football. <laughs> you're not very expressive singing the Lord, but you're very expressive in that, in that environment. Um, and so we have to learn how to do it now because there's a couple different things like, you know, the Bible says clap. The Bible says shout loudly. The Bible says raise your hands. The Bible says lay prostrate. I mean, the Bible gives a kneel. And, and I don't know if you've ever done that before. I remember we were going back to college. Um, I was a senior in college. We were going back to try to reach our campus for Christ. There was a group of us. And one of the girls said to us, she said, hey guys, when we pray um, for our campus tonight, it's our last night, we're about to go home. She said, why don't we all get on our knees? And I had never just done that in public with other people. And it was also a cement floor. <laughs> and so, but I can remember getting down on my knees and watching all my friends get down on their knees. And it's like, if you've ever done that, it like immediately changes how you feel. I, I don't know how the soul and the body work together. Sometimes something happens to your soul, it affects your body, right? You'll see this. Somebody has unconfessed sin, it will affect how they look sometimes. Because they're dealing with it so much. The soul will affect. At other times, <clears throat> something happens in my body like, you know, why do you, I joke about this, but why do you raise your hands? It, it says two things. It's I surrender, right? That's, that's the whole idea. I got nothing in my hands. The other is basically pick me up. It's, it's what kids do. It's what kids do with their parents. It's like, it's the, it's the response of, I want you to pick me up. It's like a humil, it's like, a, that's what it means. It's sometimes that's your only response. Lord, I just, I surrender and I'm rejoicing and pick me up. <laughs> I love you. I mean, that's kind of the feel of it. And so what we see here is this, this expression and emotion, because the people of God have always sung. And it's very, very interesting to think about because the Bible, like I told you, it starts with a song, it also ends with a song. In Revelation chapter 15, you don't need to turn there now, but in Revelation 15, it says that they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses doesn't show back up until Revelation chapter 15, when they sing about the Lamb who was slain. And what's very, very interesting is Jesus Christ, when he goes to the cross, he ends up on the cross saying, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Do you know what that is? That's Psalm 22, which would have been a song in his day. What is Jesus thinking about while he's dying for us? He's 
thinking about a song he heard when he was a kid, probably. And he's thinking about the character of God. And what he realized is the rest of the song is about God forsaking. And what he realized is that Jesus Christ had been our warrior king on earth, right? He'd fought the demonic. He'd lived the life we couldn't live. He goes to the cross as Christus victor. Martin Luther said the cross was, was uh, Jesus's chariot on which he overrode the devil. But he also understood that God, our warrior king in God, who we sang about back in Exodus 15, was about to go to war against his own son instead of us. The heart of the gospel was that God poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ instead of us. And so the final song in the Bible in Revelation 19, at the very end of time, before everybody heads to the new Jerusalem in heaven, they sing one final song. Guess what it's about? God's victory over all their enemies forever. And what we're going to do as we end this service today is we're going to sing a song that you've never sung before, at least never sung it here. And this song is a song about how God fights for us. It's actually a brand new song that was written recently based on Exodus 14 and Exodus 15, the two chapters we've studied for the last two weeks. And so I'm gonna pray for us in a moment. And may, as you sing this song, may it begin a new, as you look to 2021, as, you, as we sing the song together in a minute, may it just be a new season of worship for you. Whatever that means. Some of it, it means you need to sing in your car more. You need to sing in the shower more. Some of it, some of it, it is, it's about singing. Some of you, it's about a way of life. It's I want my faith to express itself. What worship is, is I want all of me to respond to all that God has done and all that God has said. Let's pray together and then sing. Lord, you are the God who fights for us. And you are so worthy of worship. When we get to heaven, there won't be any more sacraments like we saw today. When we get to heaven, there won't be any more preaching. It won't be necessary. But when we get to heaven, we will continue to sing forever. And we realize that every time we start singing to you on earth, we join a song that's already happening in heaven. So Lord, as we stand and as we sing, Lord, may deep worship come from the deepest parts of us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.